0: Two to three times a year or so, our family travels up to Denver to see extended family. Uh, Sarah's parents, her grandma, most of her aunts and uncles, uh, they're all there in Denver, as well as my sister and her family. There's almost a liturgy to these trips. There's a rhythm about them. From the packing and the driving to the arriving And then over a few days, making the rounds, house to house, table to table, familiar spot to familiar spot where we've had conversations for years. Each trip is special in its own way, but they're all pretty similar. Most of them end the same way. With a short breakfast early in the morning at Sarah's parents' place, I pack up the van and then we gather in their family room for one final goodbye. We circle up. We grab hands. Sarah's dad prays. He prays for us. Sometimes I, I, I return the favor and I pray for them. I say sometimes because my father-in-law is more spiritual than I am. And sometimes I want to get on the road. And Sometimes Sarah's mom... We'll break into one more song leading us in one more hymn of praise together. Maybe the the doxology. Sometimes I think she's just stalling. (laughs) But most of the time I think that's about as good as it gets. And then with bittersweetness we get in our van and we make our way down old I-25 back to Albuquerque. Albuquerque. Psalm 134 is like one last song, one last prayer before heading back home. It's the last of the Psalms of Ascents. Since July, we've been studying these 15 psalms together, from Psalm 120 to 134. These Psalms of Ascents, we've said, are songs for the journey. They were packaged together here within the Psalter, To be sung especially during those journeys to jerusalem three times a year for one of the great feasts for passover or the feast of weeks or the feast of booths as they traveled to jerusalem from wherever they lived they sang these songs on the way and they sang as an encouragement to head out in the first place an encouragement for the, the, the trek there and the difficulties along the way. They sang these songs as an encouragement to themselves and to each other about where they were going and why they were going there and to whom they were going to the living God for his worship and celebration and, and intercession. We've seen that in these 15 psalms, there's something of a progression Would you just flip back in your Bible? If you've been with us, this will be familiar to you. We won't read much, but we'll remind ourselves of some of what we've seen back in Psalm 120 where this starts. You might remember that it starts out not with a trip or a trek just yet, but in a foreign land in frustration with the current circumstances of sin and sinners and being maligned. It's the whole reason to head out in the first place. And then in Psalm 121, the journey begins. But the trip is long and hard. And there are big hills that you have to walk through. And sometimes it's dangerous. And so you need help. Where does your help come from? Remember, it comes from the Lord. In Psalm 122, it's as if the pilgrims are as good as there in Jerusalem. It's as if they can see it and smell it. They're familiar with that great city because they are there three times a year and they imagine themselves to be there. Our feet are already standing within your gates, Jerusalem. You might remember that though there's a progression from Psalm 120 to 134, from a foreign land to the promised land, there are also five cycles every three psalms. Every third psalm reaches a high point And that's why Psalm 122 sounds like they've already arrived in Jerusalem. It's a third psalm, the end of one of these cycles. But then remember, Psalm 123 recalibrates. It comes back down to earth, you could say. It's back on the journey, and the people are remembering the hardships they've left behind. They say, our soul has had more than enough scorn, O Lord. Psalm 124 remembers the close calls, the near misses of life, and how the Lord faithfully protected and provided. It imagines, what if the Lord had not fill in the blank? Oh, but praise God, he did fill in the blank. Psalm 125 reaches another high point. Here again, it's as if the pilgrims have arrived to their destination Almost anyway, they can maybe literally see the hills that surround Jerusalem off in the distance. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. As the Lord surrounds Jerusalem, so, as mountains surround Jerusalem, rather, so the Lord surrounds his people. Let's skip ahead to Psalm 131. Here, another high point as King David is picturing himself as a calmed and quieted, contented child on the Lord's lap. Psalm 133, which we looked at last week. It isn't a last of three, but it is a high point. You can imagine being in Jerusalem, looking around at this bustling, busy city. People from all kinds of tribes with different accents, but all united there for the Lord's worship and how beautiful it is. And then our psalm, Psalm 134, is a fitting final word to this mini songbook. It's one last song, one final prayer, in a blessing being exchanged before you head back home. It's a blessing being exchanged. I think Psalm 134 is responsive. It's back and forth. It's not just to one group or about one group. There are two groups. Verses 1 and 2 have the people or the congregation beginning by calling on the priests to bless the Lord and to do their work before the Lord in holiness and in sincerity. And then in verse 3, the priests, I think, respond To the people's blessing by blessing the people. May the Lord bless you from Zion as you go from Zion. And so back to their homes they must go. This simple fact reminds us that the pilgrimage is not just to Jerusalem or back home. Life is a pilgrimage What is life but comings and goings, hellos and goodbyes, going out and coming in, rising up and lying down? We too are pilgrims and we're on a pilgrimage. We don't go to Jerusalem for feasts as they did in Old Testament days, but we are pilgrims still the same according to the New Testament. We are traveling through this world. We are going to God. We are on our way. We're not there yet but we're going there and we have our ups and downs along the way. We have our ins and outs, our comings and goings, our hellos and our goodbyes. In the past few months as we studied these psalms together, our church has been on a journey all by itself in a sense. We've had Travelings and comings and goings of various kinds. We sent our missionaries back to their work in North Africa while we were in these Psalms. We sent out a church plant to downtown Albuquerque with two of our staff pastors going and 80 other adults and their kids going as well. We hired three new staff members during this series together. Josiah Bellflower and his wife arrived just last night And we've endured this crazy presidential election together in this trek, this pilgrimage through these Psalms of Ascent. They've been helpful to us. They've guided us on our way. They've sustained us in traveling through. We're pressing on. And we press on with plenty of smiles and lots of tears. And as we do it, we have built-in rhythms for worship, songs that we sing, prayers that we make, encouragements that we give and that we need, and promises to which we must cling. So every Sunday, we get together like this. We greet one another. We praise the living God together. We we pray for his help. We encourage each other. We encourage and celebrate our unity together. But then we say goodbye. We go our way, we gotta get back home, we got work to do. It's like our own little trip to Jerusalem every week. It's like a little trip to Denver to see family, to get our fix, to get caught up. We gotta get back home and get to it. So Psalm 134 is like that. Every Sunday here, like Psalm 134, we're calling ourselves into God's worship and we're going out with God's blessing. That's what Psalm 134 does. It has two parts, a call to worship and a blessing or or a benediction, the official word for blessing. Down through the ages, these have been two pillars in the worship of God's people. These are bookends or staples in God's worship. It's in the Psalms, it's it's in the New Testament as well, it's all throughout church history where worship services have a call to worship at the beginning, a summons, and a benediction or a blessing at the end. This is generally what we do as a church, even if we're not always explicit about it, even if we don't use such words when we do it. Drew often begins our service by reading from a psalm that calls us, Oh, come and worship. Or sometimes our first song functions like this, as it did today. Today we began by singing, Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, worship his holy name. And what we were doing when we did that was calling ourselves individually to God's worship, to bless him. We usually end our service with some sort of benediction or a blessing. Sometimes this is by reading one of those benedictions at the end of a New Testament letter. They usually begin with the word may, may the Lord, may he, may you. And sometimes we don't use scriptural text for that. We maybe put it in our own words. Sometimes we may not use that word may. We might say at the end of a service, let us now go from this place in peace and joy for... And goes on from there. That's, that's a kind of blessing. It's a blessing. And Psalm 134, though it is a parting word between pilgrims and priests, it also captures what is part in parcel to God's praise down through the ages. It's reflected in what we want to do on Sunday mornings. And here we are already at a, a lesson that we can draw from this psalm, an important one. We should take note, that as a church, we are not trying to reinvent the wheel every Sunday. We are getting our game plan and strategy on millennia-old texts that we find in the Bible. Our corporate worship may feel modern to some because of our screens or the number of instruments that get plugged in back here, but really it's ancient worship derived from scripture we're not trying to reinvent the faith every sunday we're not even trying to be creative someone in town recently told me about the church they go to with great excitement they said oh at our church you never know what's going to happen you never know what you're going to get at our church it's a surprise every sunday and I gently pushed back and I said, at our church, you, you know exactly what you're going to get. I, it's just the same every week. It's, it's Acts 2, you know, apostles' doctrine and prayer and fellowship and sometimes breaking of bread. That's it. We don't have a different game plan than that. We're not reinventing the faith every Sunday. Another lesson that we can draw from thus far in our study of Psalm 134 Might relate to scheduling and planning for corporate worship. You see, if Psalm 134 is a call to worship and a blessing as we go, that might imply for us, it might encourage us to come early as much as we can. Now, if you didn't come early this morning, don't feel bad. I actually didn't either. I was late coming into the service, wincing as I did, knowing that I was going to put this in my sermon later on. And the only excuse I have is that the preacher in the first service went far too long and I had to go to the bathroom, okay? So I didn't get in on time. But we all know sometimes there are legitimate reasons for being late and they're unavoidable. Uh, But we also know, as a church, that we're just generally not good at this. And second service is harder than first because there's so many people out in the foyer. And in some some ways, it's a, a sign of health that we're slow to come in because it means we're quick and eager to fellowship and visit with people out there in the hall. Or it might be about cookies or coffee, I don't know, but it's one of those, and those aren't bad but it'd be good for us to get in. It'd be good for us together to begin with a call to come. It'd be good for us to walk through the service and its flow and its logic, really, from beginning to end, to see it and to hear it and to experience it together, to even encourage those who have prepared and planned these things. It would also be a good encouragement, I think, to stay until we're done When you're able to. Wouldn't it be neat if we were all eager to hear the blessing at the end before we go? Food can wait. Broncos, I know, they're on right now. I got it recorded. You should have too. Uh, (laughs) But they can wait. Give me the blessing. Let me hear the blessing from the Lord. Well, that's a bit of overview of our psalm And a couple of quick lessons for us, let's now dig into some specifics. There is number one, a call for true priestly worship in verses one and two. A call to true priestly worship. The people call the priest, come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord. How do we know that these servants of the Lord are actually priests and not just servants in general? Well, they are servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord. The next Psalm actually picks up the same language and gives us a little bit more clarity. Psalm 135, look down, verse 1: Praise the name of the Lord, give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. That's the temple. And then at the end of that psalm, O house of Aaron. The priest, bless the Lord. Oh, house of Levi, the priest, bless the Lord. It's not just in our next psalm that gives us a clue that Psalm 134 is a call to the priests. We can actually look back in older texts where priests were commissioned, like Deuteronomy 10. It says there, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to be priests, to stand before the Lord, to minister, or to serve him, and to bless his name. You hear the similar language? Standing, serving, blessing in the house, and Levi the priest, the one doing it. This was priestly work, to stand before the Lord in the house of the Lord. It was lofty work, it was important work, it was busy work, and it was never ending. Think of the amount of work. We take it for granted because we've never seen priests do their job in in person. But think of the sacrifices. They estimate that two million people would enter Jerusalem during one of these feasts that didn't normally live there two million plus all those who lived there, a sacrifice for each of the families. That's a lot. That's a lot of blood. Think of the cleanup for all that. Think of the various burnt offerings going on. Think of the preparations that were needed for the next day. That's why our psalm speaks of priests who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Don't think of by night as the time when most of the priests can go to sleep, but it's a bare bones crew, otherwise. It's not like Target in the middle of the night where maybe there's a, a guard and a janitor and everyone else is home sleeping. No, at the at the temple, with these priests, the night shift wasn't at all makeshift. You get this from second, I'm sorry, 1st Chronicles chapter 9. On the priest was laid the duty of watching, it says in 1 Chronicles 9. They had the charge of opening every morning. Some of them had the charge of the utensils. Some were required to count the utensils that were brought in and taken out. Others were appointed over the furniture within the temple. Others had to deal with the holy utensils, different than the regular utensils. Some had to line up for the next day the, the flour, the wine, the oil, the incense, the spices. Others were in charge of the mixing of all those ingredients for the worship of God the next day. Some were in charge with making flat cakes, it says. Others, showbread. And then there were the singer's who were in the chambers of the temple free from all other duties because they were on duty day and night Leviticus 6 is another place we could go to see something of what goes on behind the scenes in the temple with the priestly work Leviticus 6 tells about the fire for burnt offering that can't go out, that had to keep burning all through the night. And this just keeps getting emphasized and and repeated in Leviticus 6. The the fire can't go out until the morning. The fire shall not go out, but it must keep burning. And, And when it burns, then the priest will put on his linen garment and he'll take off his undergarment and, and then he'll take these ashes and he'll put them outside the camp. And then he'll do more fire and he'll change his clothes again. And that fire shall keep burning and it shall not go out. This will happen every morning. Fire shall be burning continually. and It shall not go out. Can you imagine being the priest in charge of just this one thing? The fire can't Go out. (laughs) What do you do? In summary, there's a sentence in Leviticus 8 that helps. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, the priest shall remain day and night for seven days, performing all the Lord his charge so that he does not die, it says. Why do you stay up? Why do you gotta get fresh eyes at midnight to do the night watch so we don't die? That's why. You see, these busy, messy, all-consuming details of the priesthood are what we should have in mind when we hear our psalm say to these priests, bless the Lord. In your standing before the Lord in the house of the Lord, make sure you bless the Lord. Give him his worship. To bless the Lord is not just to do your priestly duties. To bless the Lord is to speak. It's to speak good of God. It's to speak big of God. It's to magnify God, to exalt him, to lift him up. When we do that, we don't actually make God bigger. We don't improve God, but we do prove his worth and that's why the root of our english word for worship you may have heard is something along the lines of worthship it's giving god his worth ascribing it to him in our words of prayer and praise that's what the priests must do while they stand by night in the house of the lord whatever else they're in charge of cleaning Burning, watching, setting out, lining up, mixing together. In all this, they must bless the Lord as they do it, even in the middle of the night. They must lift up their hands to the holy place, or or maybe better in the Hebrew, is lift up your hands in holiness. Lifting up hands in the Bible can be an expression of petitioning God, asking God. Like a a teenager who asks dad for money, and as he pulls his wallet out to begin to give money, their hand goes out like this to receive it. They're eager and expectant to receive it. Well, so lifting our hands toward God can be an expression of our humble need and request and expectancy. Lifting hands to God elsewhere in the Bible can be an expression of our praise to God. Calvin, John Calvin said that lifting hands like this is an outward sign of an inward reality. So raising hands by itself is nothing. Otherwise, the kid with a question in the classroom or has to use the bathroom is worshiping God. Or all through this country today in various football stadiums when someone scores a touchdown, people raise their hands up in celebration and that doesn't mean that they're worshiping Though perhaps some are actually worshiping not the true God though. But but even these examples of, of lifting hands like these, aren't these outward signs of an inward reality? Psalm 63 connects blessing God or praising God with lifting hands to him. I will bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hands. Lifting of the hands is just one of the outward expressions for praise that we find in the Bible. There's kneeling, there's bowing, there's on our face, there's trembling, there's looking up, looking down, dancing, shouting, clapping, on and on it goes. Don't think of these so much like... a. A workout plan at the gym where one does one and checks it off and moves along to the next. These things are kind of, can't help it. You can't help but do these things even though scripture commands us to do them. Worship is the churning of truth in the mind and the heart. It's the churning of truth in the mind and heart. And if so, then churning like that should at times generate energy, a need for release. At times it should get visible. Like when you drop a Mentos in a soda bottle, your praise may not be that explosive, but at some point there should be some kind of chemical reaction In the mixture of truth and consideration and experience, it's a bit like Mentos dropped in a soda bottle at times. Psalm 103 says, bless the Lord, oh my soul, bless the Lord, all that is within me. We have to be careful here though, careful of not falling off either side of a fence on this and throwing some brothers or sisters under the bus. It is possible to mistakenly judge others' spirituality and intensity in their worship only by outward signs. It is wrong to presume that a guy singing softly with his arms at his side, stiff as a board, surely isn't saved, maybe isn't communing with God But we just don't know. It could be that he's melting on the inside. It's also wrong to presume that the godliest gal in the room is always the one hanging from the chandelier. (laughs) Chances are good she's not. It's possible to deceive ourselves to think that the mark of our spirituality is how long we close our eyes or how frequently we lift up hands or whether we'll be bold in our worship. But these are not necessarily marks of godliness. Sometimes the Lord desires obedience in less hands. On the other side of the fence, though, it is possible for us to dismiss physical expressiveness as simply a personality thing. You might have said before, I'm introverted, and I'm mild-mannered, and so hands raised, that's for some people, but not me. Well, be careful. There's a whole lot in the Bible about physical expressiveness in worship. I wonder, doesn't God's truth and the experience of God ever fill you, even overtake you, so that you feel the need, the the, the necessity to sing louder than you were singing? Don't you ever feel the need for some mechanism for further expression of your praise and thanks to God. I can't relate if it never, ever, ever, ever gets physical. So you don't have to raise a hand. But I just wonder, is there ever anything that so stirs in you and churns in you that you got to do something? Heck, take your shoes off if you want. That might not be loving your neighbor as yourself, though, so consider that. But these pilgrims singing Psalm 134, they want their priests to have the real deal. They want their priests to not cut corners, but as they do their work and do their work well, to go even further, to bless the Lord and to lift holy hands to the Lord. They're saying to their priests, let it not be mundane. You do it all day. You do it all night. Let it not be mere routine for you. Let it be to you what it is. Worship before the living God. Let it not be mere tasks and to-dos, let alone drudgery, but blessing the Lord and irrepressibly praising him as you do it. These people called on their ministers to do this. I love that. I love that they preached to the preachers. They started the last devotional before the journey home. They said, we're going to go home. you got to stay here. Now, you keep it real while we're gone. Over the next three months or so, we won't be here. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep it real. Keep interceding for us. Make all your sacrifices and offerings, and may they all be pleasing to the Lord and And on our behalf, now there are some significant ways that our psalm gets to the New Testament and today, ones that we'll talk about in just a bit, but one maybe less obvious or peripheral is this, that the New Testament tells Christians to pray and encourage those who lead them. Pray for those who lead you, who pastor you. They're not priests. They're pastors. They're shepherds. They're servants. And they lead in the praise of God among the people of God. Pray for their preparation. Pray for their praise on a Sunday morning. Pray for their holiness and sincerity. Would you pray for our worship week to week. Pray for the planning that takes place on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. The preparations that are made by those who plan. Pray for the ministry of God's word each week. Pray for my Thursday morning which is my most intense sermon preparation time because the outline has to go to the printer for the bulletin to get printed. So Thursday morning's crunch time. Pray for my Thursday morning or my Friday morning. Pray for the fruit of God's word being worked out in our church on Monday and Tuesday. We see this in the New Testament where Paul asks churches to pray for him in the ministry of his word. He he calls on churches to pray for those who have the lead over them. And don't just pray for them, but encourage them. Encourage those who minister on your behalf before the Lord. Some of the most encouraging words I've ever received in pastoral ministry have been from eager, expectant saints before a Sunday morning service or even on a Saturday night who were willing to give me a quick pep talk about what's to come, about what we're doing. I wrote down a few things that I remember because they still ring in my head with crystal clarity. People over the years have said to me, sometimes at 8.55, sometimes at 10.40, sometimes the night before, they've said, let me hear it today, preacher. Hey, bring it. Don't hold back. Let me have it. You know I need it. Feed us, preach. Give us the meat. One brother said to me once, y'all studied up and prayed up? And I said, as much as it's going to get. And he said, well, whatever you got, time to let it loose. Isn't that what Psalm 34 is sort of doing, where the people call on and exhort their ministers to be the real deal and to do the work for real? That's needed now. We can't forget, though, this wasn't written in our day. This was needed in Old Testament times. Because the leadership in Old Testament days could be hit or miss. You want to feel something of the heartbeat and weight behind this exhortation in verses 1 and 2, just read the book of Malachi. The last prophet of the Old Testament preached to the priests. Priests who wouldn't lift their holy hands and didn't bless the Lord. They did their priestly duties, but just barely. They rolled their eyes, they cut They yawned. They complained. They said to the Lord, what weariness is all this? They huffed at it. And God hated it. He wished they did none of it. Now, thankfully, that's not the case in our psalm. That's not the priesthood of Psalm 134. Oh, if the priests in Malachi's day could have read and heeded Psalm 134, they would have learned from the people's call for true priestly worship. And they would have learned from the priest's example as they responded to it in verse 3. So secondly here, there's a sure priestly blessing for the journey. How do the priests respond to this call to bless the Lord? Well, may the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Blessing, or blessed, or bless. It's three times in our psalm. It's important. We might roll our eyes at it, though. People use bless. Loosely today. Hashtag blessed. Many of us still say bless you when someone sneezes, even though there's likely no chance that it's the first sign of the bubonic plague. Down in the South, they say bless after they've spoken horribly about someone and they feel bad about it. So he's an idiot. Bless. So we can maybe be tempted to dismiss this word, bless. But it is an important one. It's a a wonderful one. It's It's a gospel word in a sense. This was central to God's promise to Abraham. In him, all the families of the world would be blessed. This is the Psalm 1 man. When he walks in the ways of the Lord and meditates on the the word of the Lord day and night, he's like a tree. He's blessed. Blessed was the introductory theme of Jesus' most famous sermon, his longest recorded sermon. He began by blessed, blessed, blessed. Next week, we'll begin a short series through those sayings of blessedness, which we call the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. To be blessed isn't necessarily material blessing or ease or tranquility. It's not merely heavenly reward. If you want to know what it means to be blessed, look at Aaron's blessing in Numbers 6. God told him, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. He'll say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. This is blessing. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And God says, so they the priests shall put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. Oh, to get a blessing like that. A manifold blessing. A blessing so rich that it's nothing less than God himself and his name and his face and his grace, his countenance and his keeping. Oh, to get a sure blessing like that. One spoken from God through the high priest. One which was accompanied by God's own word that he would bless what Aaron blessed. Oh, to get a blessing like that. To get a blessing with the added language from our psalm. Blessing from Zion, from God's dwelling place. A blessing from the one who made heaven and earth, the powerful creator, the owner of all, the manager and distributor of all that's good. How do you get a blessing like this? Especially since we've already mentioned the priestly debacle in the book of Malachi, and that we already know that there's an up and a down constantly read throughout the Old Testament stories. Even Aaron, the great high priest, led the people astray. He was the one who led the people to make a golden calf to worship that instead of their Lord. And even when the priesthood and the priests were at their healthiest and best, we still have to remember that the sacrifices were never ending, they never actually dealt with sin. The sin kept coming and so you must go to Jerusalem with your calf or ox or whatever again. Oh yes, there's a sweetness in a community about going to Jerusalem for these three yearly feasts and sacrifices but also feel something of the tyranny the relentlessness, you must get there again, sacrifice again, the priest is never done and the work is never finished. Hebrews 10 ties all of this together in one nice, neat Jesus bow. I think we've gone to Hebrews maybe every single week that we've been in these Psalms together I thought maybe we shouldn't do it again this week, but then I thought otherwise. Because how can we not, when we think of Old Testament temple and Zion and sacrifice and priests, not think of what Hebrews tells us about these things. That in those sacrifices of the Old Testament, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice, that is his own body upon the cross, for sins, then he sat down at the right hand of God. The priests of old stood and stood, and stood. There was no chair in the holy of holies because there was no sitting down, and the work was never done. It was by day and it was by night. Oh, but Jesus came. He made sacrifice for sins once. The sacrifice was so pure and so perfect and the priest was so good and so righteous when he had finished, he sat down Hebrews 9, Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands like in the Old Testament. Those were copies of the true things. But Christ entered heaven itself to make sacrifice. He appeared in the presence of God on our behalf. You see those Old Testament priests. They entered the holy places year after year with blood not their own, but Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him. Have you drawn near to him? Have you come to believe that he is your only saving hope, that the cross was not just an emblem that Christians use as sort of their slogan or It'll make for good tattoos someday in the future. But this is, this is our hope. This is our life. This is what we're resting on, that Christ died in our place for our sins. He fixed the problem that nothing before ever could. I pray you'd draw near to him today. You'd believe that he died and he died for you. Would you tell him that today? If so, then rejoice in the fact that his sacrifice is finished. He said from the cross, it is finished. And so this morning, we don't have to head out from this place, calling on Jesus and exhorting him to stay true, to be pure, to keep at it and be righteous. He has been righteous. He is righteous. He will stay faithful You prayed for Psalm 134 like priests back then because that's all you could do. But we have one now for whom we don't pray, but one who prays for us. This priest has not only made a one-time for-all sacrifice, but ongoingly he intercedes, he prays, he blesses us. We get the best blessing that could ever be imagined from any priest. Here's the perfect priest, the eternal priest. Also the one who made perfect and eternal and lasting sacrifice. The one who doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in him we are blessed to the hilt, to the heavens. As it says in Acts 3, God raised up his servant, to bless you by turning you from your wickedness. And Ephesians 1 tells us that we can now bless God, our Father, because he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Our physical blessings might be little or frail or coming and going but he has given us every blessing we need for this life and the life to come. He has so blessed us that he has made us a blessing. His saving power is so great that he not only can cleanse our sin, forgive us and reconcile us to God, the New Testament actually tells us that this priest makes us priests. He makes us priests. If you're a Christian, you're a priest today whether you like it or not. What does it mean that you're a priest? Well, it means you go between. You're an interceder. You intercede on behalf of the world. You give a message to them about how they can be reconciled to God. You pray for them. We're told to pray for all, especially those who are in authority over us, First Timothy 2. We should pray for our political leaders, whether we like them or not. We should pray for those who revile us and seek to do us harm, those who are against us, even if those against us are also those over us. And it also means that we have access to the very presence of God. We don't have a go between. As priests, we go to Him. We enter into his very presence. We can enter the throne room of his grace without any hesitation because Jesus, the high priest, is there. And he's a sympathetic priest who understands our weaknesses. We can draw near to the throne of grace because, in a sense, we're already there. That's where we live. Do you know that? Worship now isn't in Jerusalem It's constant, it's everywhere, it's anywhere, it's almost in anything, that is, anything good. Now that the temple has burst forth out of Jerusalem into this world, God has made all things pure. It's as if he's made everything we touch a possible instrument for his worship. These are furnishings for his worship. These are the ingredients for his worship. So whatever you do today, Good or bad, you do it in the temple of the living God. I know you can't see that temple, but you're in it. Whatever you do tomorrow, you will do as a priest of the living God before his very face. Will you represent him well? Will you realize what's going on around you? Though it looks one-dimensional, it looks like errands and diapers and school and schedule it looks like emails and checkbooks and making food and cleaning house and getting leaves out of your backyard. That's not it, though. Those are opportunities for our priestly work in the temple of God. Will we do it with joy? Will we bless Him as we do it? Will we lift up holy hands even in the mundane? Or will we think, yeah, this is just, just tasks, just stuff that's got to get done, stuff in the way. Maybe even church for you is one of those. But instead, think of it as priests come together for the living God, for the worship of God, to bless him and to bless each other. How much more can we bless and encourage each other when all of us in Christ have been made priests and we right now are in the temple as temples ourselves well on that note we say goodbye to the psalms of ascents for now we say goodbye to another week here together but we'll say hello next week if not sooner because we're traveling through this world together God is with us and we have each other. We're going to God. We're not there yet, but we will one day, perhaps soon. And what a day of rejoicing it will be. Let's pray. Father, what could we pray better than what Aaron said in his blessing Would you bless us, Lord? Would you keep us? Make your face to shine upon us because of Jesus Christ. Would you please be gracious to us and lift up your countenance upon all of us here? Would you give us peace that can only come through Jesus Christ and his shed blood? Give faith where that's needed. Put your name on people here today who haven't yet come to believe Change them, Lord. Transform them. Give them new eyes to see. Cause them to join us in your grand global plan to bless you. Help us, Lord, as priests, to bless you in everything we do, whether we eat or drink or whether we sing. Help us now as we together sing. In Jesus' name, amen.